So there's this guy called Sam Harris. He's one of the more famous, he's, he's like a really famous dude, and uh, this new atheist. And what I'm gonna do tonight is give you a little bit of a, a brief overview of some of the main points that I've gleaned from him. I'm gonna tell you the things that he and I agree on, and then I'm gonna tell you about some things that he and I disagree on. But before I get to that, I need to offer two disclaimers. And the first comes in the form of a story. I had this friend of mine who was trying to lose weight. And so he started a new diet. First day of the new diet, he comes down to his kitchen, he makes a bagel like normal, it's in the toaster, as it's in the toaster, he's looking through the refrigerator, he pulls out the, the silver-wrapped package of cream cheese, he, uh, he pulls it out, he starts putting it on the bagel. And it was, it was low-fat cream cheese, because he, he normally took the, like, the regular fat stuff. So he took a bite out of it, he wasn't used to it, he's like, this is awful. So what did he do? He put more of it on the bagel. So he put more cream cheese on. And he's like, uh, you know what? I start this diet, but this is really awful. Maybe more will taste better. So it wasn't any better. He said it was worse. So the second half of the bagel, he put even more on. And uh, so he, he wraps it back up, puts it in the fridge. His wife comes down. And he says to his wife, they had a house guest staying with them. And he said to his wife, hey, can you tell Ashley to not buy the light cream cheese anymore? This stuff is awful. And she's like, okay, sure. She walked to the fridge, and she just started cracking up. And he's like, what? You were eating Crisco. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, man. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the disclaimer. You know, as sometimes we can mistake... Uh, we can mistake uh, a knockoff for the real thing. And I think that applies to, to things of, of faith and, and God as well. And I just want to acknowledge that, that Christians are not always the best representation of God's ideal. And so, you know, as we start talking about faith and morality and science and all that stuff, I think it's just important to, to not confuse God's ideal with our imperfect representation of that. Um, you know, sometimes that imperfect representation is uh, unintentional. What's well, hopefully it's always unintentional, but sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. Um, so that's disclaimer one. Disclaimer two is I am not a Sam Harris expert. You know, in high school English class, the teacher would assign a book to read, and you'd have a couple options. You could read the book. You could read the cliff notes, or you could watch the movie. For the record, I always read the book, but this time I watched the movie. I had this, uh, this great friend of mine send me a, uh, a TED talk that Sam Harris did, and I didn't have time to do to read through his big, thick book, so I watched the movie a couple times, and then did a little bit more research. But all that to say, I'm not a Sam Harris expert, um, and, but I think we'll get through okay. So, uh, so as I'm talking and, and as Brian's talking, feel free to save up questions, comments, curiosities, and then at the end we'll, we'll field all that stuff together. So as I watched Sam Harris talk, his big thing is that we can figure out how to live a moral life through science. Like science can tell us what our morals should be. That's what his, his talk was about. And he, I saw kind of five 
five main points. Five of those main points were that, one, science can determine human values. We don't need religion or philosophy to do that. Science can do it for us. And his thought is that as neuroscience progresses, he's a neuroscientist philosopher by background, as neuroscience progresses and makes known to us more and more of how the brain operates, we'll be able to determine more and more how we should live. One of his other main points is that we can make judgments about moral practices of different societies. We can say some societies have better moral practices and others do not. And one example he gave was uh, the compulsory veiling of, of women in some Muslim societies. He would say that's wrong. He would also say the way that women's bodies are displayed in our society at the newsstand is wrong. But he would say we can make moral judgments about those things. Uh, that actually leads to point number three. There is absolute right and wrong in his mind. He is a relativist. Uh, number four, human, human well-being seems to be what he considers the highest good. Empathy and compassion are, are up there, but human well-being seems to be the standard which with, with which he measures things. And then um, the fifth thing to take away is that even though science can help us determine morals, science will never answer every ethical dilemma. So that's, uh, that's kind of the takeaways from him. Here's what he and I agree on. I was surprised that he and I agree that there is absolute right and wrong. Now there, of course, are tricky gray matters. There are ethical quandaries. But he and I agree that we can and should make moral judgments. Now he and, I, he and I may not agree on how to evaluate what is right and wrong, or which actions are right and wrong, but we agree that it is appropriate to say there are right and wrong answers to many moral questions. So here's where he and I disagree. It's not that I disagree so much with what he says. I'm just not sure he's saying that much. If you were in the, if you lived in the 80s, you may remember these commercials from Wendy's with a little old lady that would drive through the drive-through window in her car, and and she'd order a hamburger. She'd get the hamburger, and she'd open up this huge bun, and there'd be like this tiny shred of hamburger, and she'd say, "Where's the beef?" And she'd demand, she wanted like a meaty hamburger. And she would eventually drive to Wendy's and they would have the beef and she would be satisfied. Um, the thing that I want to ask, I want Sam Harris to take me to Wendy's. Because I, I listen to him and it's, and it's interesting, but I want to know where's the beef? He makes a very interesting case that science can help us figure out how we should live but at least the stuff I've been to exposed of him so far, he doesn't say how science will do that. Um, as, as far as I can gather, Sam Harris' method seems to say, we're going to look at the brain and we're going to attach electrodes or put people in fancy tubes or however people like scan the brain to see what's going on. And we're going to do that, and as people do different actions we're going to know what parts of the brain register activity. Is it the part of the brain that, that is activated that um, indicates happiness? Or are we seeing sadness or empathy or greed or, or sadness as they do X action? And as we do that, that's going to, that's going to uh, 
show us somehow how to figure out stuff. But the question I have is, you still have to interpret that data. And so how do you know which reaction is best? Is it best to have a reaction of, of elation? A reaction of empathy? Of greed? Which reaction is best and why or why not? The best I can gather, Sam Harris would say that we're innately aware of basic morality. That compassion and empathy are good and we're innately aware of that. Human well-being is good and we should strive for human well-being. But the thing is, how do we know what human well-being is? I mean, it, is it the absence of suffering? If, if that's simply human well-being, then, then it's pretty easy to figure out what to do. We just put everybody into a coma, hook them up to an IV, and turn them into vegetables. No more suffering. The Matrix. No. The Matrix. The Matrix. That, that's, that's pretty preposterous, but is it, is it the absence of suffering, or is it the presence of a good? Is it happiness? Which would lead to a very different way we should live. But then you have to ask, is it happiness for ourselves? Is it happiness for others? Because that will lead to very different paths. So how do we decide what human flourishing means? And so far, I haven't found a spot where Sam Harris tells us where he defines what human flourishing means. Um, and for me, that makes it hard to engage with. The closest he seems to come to saying is that it's, it's intuitive, it's instinctual. But if it's instinctual, then why do we need science? And if these things, these ethics of compassion and empathy are, are so obvious, then why are they not practiced the same way and to the same degree around the world? It seems to me that he needs to show us a, a method if he wants to take us where he's going. Um, here's one more thing to consider. So, if better science leads to greater understanding of right and wrong, then it would seem to me that the most scientifically advanced society should be the most moral, the most just, the place where people are doing the best. But at least in today's climate, I'm not sure that's the case. The most scientifically advanced may be the cleanest societies. They may be the most sanitary for, for us who are the majority, but I'm not sure they always have the highest level of human well-being. Um, you know, so we could look at France, very scientifically advanced, yet they have large pockets of Muslim immigrants that are disenfranchised, can't get jobs, have crazy riots. It's a huge problem. And we could do the same thing and look at the US, where we've got the best science in the world, but yet we still have people that are horribly mistreated. We could, we could go to factories that hire undocumented workers. We could go to factories where managers and owners hire those undocumented wor workers knowing, knowing they're not legal, but are perfectly happy to, to have those folks work in their factories. But some of these factories, the, the managers will call the government before payday. And so that uh, customs and immigration will come in, swoop in these folks, deport them, and the, the company doesn't have to give them a paycheck. Both these societies have some of the most advanced science in the world. But it seems to me these societies would be better off if they followed the Old Testament exhortation to welcome the stranger and alien 
and to provide for them economically and to not outlaw them. As a Christian, I believe that God has a much better understanding of my brain than I do. And I believe that he gave us a foundation on which to figure out what the highest good is and how we should live. That doesn't always mean that we get it right, but it does provide a foundation. And since I believe in God, I don't have trouble with, with the idea that he made this Bible, he made this user's manual for me, that even if I don't always fully understand why he wants me to do a certain thing, I can, I can trust that he understands me better than I understand myself. And the reason I, I like that is having such a foundational thing is because I think that all of us, whether or not we're aware of it, have foundational beliefs that we build other beliefs and actions on. We may be aware of those beliefs and, and we may not. And even if we have you know, stated beliefs that we form our foundation on, that doesn't always mean that's where we act in consistency with those beliefs or that that's what we really believe in. But it seems to me that all of us have a foundation. And Sam Harris is an interesting guy, really smart guy. And as far as I can tell so far, either he's not aware of his foundations or he's not willing to, to reveal what they are. Um, I'm going to close with, with this thought. Um, in the TED Talk, he, he makes a passing comment saying, some minds will be able to comprehend certain levels of moral awareness and some minds will not be able to comprehend certain levels of moral awareness. And so, again, the foundational issue comes up. And so if Sam Harris stands up and says, like, hey, uh, Sam Harris' mind here has X level of moral awareness. I'm one of the guys who understands it the best, my mind. And I stand up and I say, hey, my Josh Miller mind, I, I think the same thing. But we come to different conclusions of what the highest moral awareness is. When you get there... How do you decide? You know, what's, what's going, how are you going to, to decide? Um, so, I think bottom line, I think that he has a lot of fascinating things to say. And I know that some of you out there know more about Sam Harris than I do. So when it comes to Q&A, well, uh, if, uh, please correct me if I've said something erroneous. Um, but I, I did look at some other some other scholarly folks who have reviewed some of his material because I watched the video and I thought, this is too easy. Um, uh, but some of the scholarly folks have kind of like said the same stuff, like uh, there's like, where's the foundation? Um, and so, uh, as I said, I'm the warm-up band. I'm gonna turn it over to the meat and potatoes guy after I introduce him. So stay there a second. Um, but the dude coming up next is Brian Ballard. An awesome dude. Brian is a PhD philosophy student at Pitt, and I learned this past week uh, from another source that apparently Pitt's philosophy program is ranked uh, like number five or six in the nation. Brian's from California. Uh, he did his master's at NYU. He's um, uh, working on his PhD, as I said. The thing I love about Brian is that a lot of philosophers use their power for evil. That's been my experience. <laughs> Like, they get so good at thinking and making arguments that they'll show off or belittle people or just use those things to, to toy around with people and have fun. Uh, the thing I love about Brian is 
he uses his power for good. And even if you don't agree with, uh, with stuff he says or where he's coming from, my experience has been that Brian is always very uh, patient, understandable, uh, just an awesome guy. So please help me welcome Brian Ballard. Hey, y'all. So I'm going to start by reading this passage after I adjust the mic. Um, this is a passage from a letter that Darwin wrote to a guy named William Graham. I have no idea who that is. In 1881, Darwin writes, he says, But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? So this passage has been come to refer to as Darwin's doubt because it's a doubt he had about, about evolution. He's kind of saying, look, if, if our minds evolved, should we really trust their abilities to get at the truth? So um, I'm going to kind of explore some of those themes in the next 30 minutes or so. Um, let me introduce you to four characters first. Okay. So the first character, we're going to call him the naturalist. Um, you know, we've been using the term new atheist and so on, but I'm going to say naturalist because usually people, like an atheist is technically just someone who doesn't believe in God. But do you know, do you know any atheists who believe in angels or who believe in immortal souls? I don't. So usually atheism is a stronger, it's like a whole package. Um, so let's call it naturalism. It's the idea that nature is really all there is. Whatever nature is, that's all there is. Science kind of tells the whole story. So there's no God, no angels, no immortal souls, nothing spooky like that. Um, naturalists really don't like the spooky stuff. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. Um, that's the first character. Now a lot of naturalists also want to be what we're going to call a moral realist. Now, what's a moral realist? A moral realist thinks this. He thinks that there are moral facts out there um, so that when I say something like genocide is wrong, I'm stating a moral fact. And he also thinks that these facts are mind independent. They're independent of my mind. They're out there in the world anyways. They're not things that are constructed or invented by me or by societies. You know, if you got a committee together and they voted on it, that wouldn't make a difference to whether genocide is wrong. So think of an analogy. Uh, you know, think about the truths of grammar. Okay, so here's a truth that, like, you shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition. Now, what makes that true? Well, that's the kind of thing that societies make true by sort of agreeing or practicing grammar in a certain way. Okay, here's another kind of thing, like gravity, like stuff falls down, you know. I hear gravity is actually more complicated than that, but... <laughs> But gravity's not the kind of thing, I don't think, that societies make true by sort of believing in it or practicing in a certain way. If everybody believed stuff didn't fall down, they would just be wrong about that. So here's a question. Is morality more like grammar, or is it more like gravity in that sense? So a moral realist thinks morality is more like gravity. So when I say genocide is wrong, it's a fact about the world and... and if someone says genocide is right, even if everyone in the world says that, they're just wrong. So, um, 
Someone who denies this, let's call them a moral anti-realist or a relativist. These are people who think that morality is more like grammar. So a kind of test case to see where these views come apart is when you think of different kinds of societies like um, Native American societies. There are a lot of praiseworthy ones, I'm told. I'm not really a historian, but I'm told there are praiseworthy ones. So I want to say there's something good about them objectively. And, but for the relativist who thinks that morality is just kind of made up, we can't really say that. All statements about the quality of a society have to be indexed to the value system of that society. Just as all statements about grammar are indexed to a certain system of language, a certain system of speech. Okay, so that's the moral realist. Okay, so a lot of naturalists want to say there are these objective, mind-independent moral facts. Um, so Sam Harris is an example. There are loads of philosophers today, like Derek Parfit, one of my teachers at NYU, and Thomas Nagel. These folks, there are loads of these naturalists who want to be moral realists. Um, but they don't just want to be moral realists. They also want to say that we know a whole lot about what the moral facts are. It's not just that there are some objective moral facts out there. After all, I think there are objective facts about whether there are aliens. But I don't think we really know what any of those are. But naturalists and moral realists, more exactly, they typically think, look, we know what, we know what a lot of these moral facts are. We know that genocide is wrong. If we know anything, we know that. We know that it's wrong to torture babies just for fun. And so on. We know it's wrong to break your promises just for kicks. Okay? So, um, and I, so I agree with them. I'm a moral realist, and I think we know loads about morality. Um, and a lot of naturalists also want to say this. So um, the last character I'm going to introduce us to is the theist. By the theist, I just mean a believer in God uh, who also kind of has a richer worldview. So someone in the Judaic theistic tradition, like and, and uh, someone who believes Islam, Judaism, or Christianity. I'm going to just use theism to refer to that. Um, so it's not just belief in God, it's belief that the world has a certain origin, and that God is sustaining things in existence, that he doesn't just exist, but that he's good and wise and personally has things like beliefs and desires and so on. Let's, let's build all that into theism. Okay? So that's the, cast, that's the cast of characters. Now here's what I'm going to say about these, these characters. I'm going to say that um, a naturalist who wants to be a moral realist has to be a moral skeptic. So a naturalist who wants to be a moral realist has to be a moral skeptic. A moral skeptic, well, I guess we have one more character here. He's the person who thinks, look, there are mind-independent, objective moral facts, but we're, it's, it's hopeless to know whether we really are tracking the truth about them. We don't really know what they are. That's the moral skeptic. Um, so if a naturalist thinks there are objective moral facts, he needs to be skeptical about whether we know anything about them. He should doubt that you know that genocide is wrong, he should doubt, that you know that it's wrong to break your promises just for kicks, and so on. That's what I'm gonna argue, that's just, a that's not an argument, that's just a statement of what I'm gonna argue for. Um, so here's the argument, okay. It's gonna come in three steps. The first step, uh, I'm going to hedge on later, but I'm just gonna throw it out there now. Um, the first step is that if naturalism is true, if nature is the whole story, then we're going to need to tell an evolutionary account of where these moral beliefs of ours came from, of where this capacity came from to arrive at judgments of right and wrong, good and bad, and so on. That's the first step. The second step of the argument, um, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that if we give an evolutionary account of where our moral beliefs and our moral capacities came from, 
we should be very skeptical about whether they're tracking the moral truth, assuming that these moral truths are mind independent, as the realist wants to say they are. And the last step of the argument is this. I'm going to say that the theist doesn't have that problem. Okay, So the theist needn't tell a merely evolutionary story, though he ought to tell a partially evolutionary story. I think theists ought to, ought to just accept a kind of theistic evolution. Sorry if that's offensive to some people. But um, a theist can say that in addition to the influence of evolution on our moral beliefs, there's also special divine action. There's God doing stuff. God directing the course of evolution because he wants us to know right from wrong. Okay, so those are the three steps. A naturalist has to tell this evolutionary account of our moral beliefs, step one. Step two, that evolutionary account leads to moral skepticism. Step three, the theist can avoid moral skepticism because he needn't be bound to a merely evolutionary account. Okay, so those are the steps. Now let's argue for each step. Um, step one. So if you're a naturalist, look, really when it comes to any kind of belief source we have, we have various belief sources like perception, memory, moral beliefs, um, testimony of other people. We have all these belief sources. Um, and when it comes to saying what the origins of these belief sources are, Peter Van Eemwagen, a, a great Christian philosopher at Notre Dame, uh, rightly observed that there are really only three kinds of influences that could, that could be involved in this origin story we tell about a belief source. The first influence is evolutionary or biological. The second influence is social, some kind of social training or inculcation. The third influence is divine handiwork. So if you're a naturalist, of course, you reject that there's a god, so you don't think the third one is, 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 is a candidate to be involved in any origin story. So you think that any given belief source, I'm going to say belief source or faculty or capacity, it just means a power to arrive at beliefs of a certain sort. Okay. So if you're a naturalist, you're going to have to say that any given belief source is the result of evolutionary forces, social inculcation, or some combination of the two. Probably it's going to be the third, some, some nuanced combination of the two. Um, so of course, this is not what I'm saying a naturalist needs to say. A naturalist needs to say, look, 100,000 years ago in the Sahara, evolution gave everybody an innate set of moral beliefs that we're all going to believe come what may. Okay, so of course that's not, of course that's not right. That's very controversial. That view is called nativism. But I'm just saying that evolution, if you're a naturalist, you should think that evolution has exerted a strong influence on certain kinds of evaluative tendencies, certain tendencies to form uh, moral judgments with a certain content. So examples of these judgments would be that we have special obligations to our kin uh, as opposed to people unrelated to us. More generally, that we have special obligations to our in-group, um, that there should be certain kinds of restrictions on killing. So those would be some examples of good candidates of beliefs that we should think evolution has put, it, put in us a certain tendency to judge those things, um, or some version of those things. Now, of course, it's not that they popped up. You would have certain, like, proto-evaluations, you know, certain kinds of affective states or emotion states. You know, so think of... Uh, whatever kind of phase of human evolution was before Homo sapiens, however long ago. You know, they might not have fully-fledged moral beliefs. First, they might just have certain disgust reactions when you see someone, um, I don't know, committing incest. You have a certain dis disgust reaction. Once Homo sapiens comes on the scene, inheriting that disgust reaction, but bringing to the table a certain capacity for language and for reflection, they can then form judgments and say, yeah, I think that's right, that 
that we should be disgusted at incest, that this is something that's wrong. Um, so that's, I'm just kind of sketching the kind of evolutionary story a naturalist could tell. Of course, it's a just-so story, and at this point, <clears throat> um, moral psychology that likes to explore the evolution of moral judgment is very sort of sketchy and controversial, so that's just an example of one thing, one way the story might go. Um, so that's step one. Uh, we'll, we'll revisit step one in a minute. Step one is just that the naturalist needs to tell this kind of evolutionary account of our moral capacity. The, it's, it's harder to show step two. Step two is that this account will lead to skepticism. Okay. Um, now, this worry that evolution, uh, an evolved moral sense, would be, would be a faulty, unreliable one, this was registered by contemporaries of Darwin's. So Frances Cobb, has anyone heard of her? She was a um, sort of social activist and writer, uh, contemporary of Darwin's. And she wrote in 1875 that evolution implies that not only has our moral sense come to us from a source commanding no special respect, but that it answers to no external or durable, not to say universal or eternal, reality which is merely tentative and provisional. The provincial prejudice, as we may describe it, of this little world and its temporary inhabitants, which would be looked upon with a smile of derision by better informed people now residing on Mars. So there we have a contemporary of Darwin's registering a doubt about whether evolution would guide our moral sense to um, accuracy or to track the moral truth. Um, now people object to these doubts and there's a certain plausibility to the objection, especially because, look, you might think, um, as so I've talked about this with, with this philosopher at Rutgers named Jerry Fodor, and he just insists, no, that's wrong. Evolution always maximizes reliability. It always maximizes accuracy. Um, and and one, one reason you might think that is, first of all, because of certain examples, like perception. When I say perception, I mean things like vision and hearing. And so you might think, Look, evolution makes it very likely that perception would be accurate, right? Because think about it. If you were always misjudging, radically misjudging the distances of cliffs, um, that would be very bad, okay? If you, if you were unable to see your children or to see deadly reptiles, if every time you saw a lion, you thought, boy, there's a potential spouse, that would be very bad, okay? So it seems like with perception, there's this prima facie case, there's this initial case that um, evolution would, would make it very likely perception is reliable, okay? But why is that true of perception, supposing it is true? Not everyone thinks it is. Alvin Plantinga, a very good Christian philosopher, denies that. But suppose it is. Why would that be? I think it's something like this. Because perception needs to be accurate in order to be adaptive, okay? Perception needs to be accurate in order to be adaptive. If perception is inaccurate, it tends to be maladaptive. It tends to get you killed. Okay, so, but this is not true of all belief sources, and the naturalist has to admit that. Here's why. Because think about religious belief. Religious beliefs are some of the most widely spread and deeply entrenched convictions that humanity holds, okay? So clearly they're not getting us killed. In fact, an a naturalist ought to admit that they encourage social cohesion, various things like this. Um, clearly, they're adaptive. At the very least, they're not maladaptive. But does the naturalist think they're true? Well, of course not. Like, 
that's explicitly what his, his view denies, is that any kind of religious or supernatural belief is true. So that's an example uh, where a naturalist has to admit that you have a, on his view, a systematically false set of beliefs that nonetheless is very adaptive. Okay, so, so he's, it's not just a given that if, if a belief set evolved, it's going to be um, true or tend towards reliability or accuracy. Um, it depends on whether it needs to be true in order to be adaptive, okay? Um, other people have made similar objections to the, the one that Jerry Fodor has made. So a, a, a very famous Harvard philosopher named Klein um, has said that creatures inveterately wrong in their inductions, in their inferences, have a pathetic but praiseworthy tendency to die before reproducing their kind. So his idea there is that, look, if you're always getting your inferences wrong, then you're probably gonna die. Yeah, but look, that's not exactly true, is it? Because think about it, false scientific theories allow you to make very useful predictions all the time. So um, hun for hundreds of years, I'm told, I'm not a historian again, for hundreds of years after uh, heliocentrism, after the, the Ptolemaic system was overturned, which is like an old school system of cosmology, Sailors were still using the Ptolemaic cosmology to navigate the seas because it was too complicated to use the new cosmology. So they were using a false cosmology to make very um, useful predictions about where to go um, in the oceans. So that's an example of a, of a false theory, presumably, that makes very useful predictions, okay? People don't really buy Newtonian mechanics, but the thing gets rockets to the moon, people. So it's, it's a truism by now that false theories can make um, very useful and good predictions. So it's just not true that making, making faulty inferences will always get you killed. In fact, often it can be um, very, very useful. Okay, An another reason that people sometimes think that, look, there's no way evolution could lead to skepticism about, about your moral beliefs. Um, so Aaron Zimmerman, a philosopher at UC Santa Barbara, pressed this point to me once. Um, he said, because it's just irrelevant. It happened like 100,000 years ago. I hope I'm right about that. Philosophers don't know anything about the world, so whatever. Um, it's just irrelevant. How could, how could facts about our origins that are so old, so far away, so, so distal, how could that even be pertinent? Okay, but that's not really right, because think about this. Suppose you were using a compass. It's the only compass we have, so we have no other way to check whether it's right. And you show me the compass, and I say, okay, look, uh, that compass was actually made in, in a town called Lazy Town, where all the people are very, very lazy, and they're terrible engineers, and they don't really care about their work or take pride in it. They just watch Game of Thrones all day long. <laughs> this now raises doubts about the reliability of the compass, and it actually cancels your warrant, the reasonableness of relying on, on the compass. Um, so what that shows us is, look, it's pretty obvious, there are very compelling cases where the origins of a belief source, such as a compass or an instrument or perception and so on, is relevant to how we assess its, its reliability, its accuracy, its tendency to track the truth. Okay, and now Aaron Zimmerman was saying, yeah, but it doesn't matter if, if its origins are like from a very long time ago, but that's not true. Because suppose we just say, uh, we lock ourselves in cryogenic freezing and we wake up in a million years and we still have the same compass from Lazy Town. The fact that it was from Lazy Town still gives you a reason to doubt the reliability of the compass, so that the years that have passed are simply irrelevant. Um, so I don't think the objections to step two are, are very good. Um, 
Let me press the point, of course, because, look, is morality, the, the real question is this, is, mor is moral belief the kind of thing that needs to be true in order to be adaptive? And I'm going to say that it doesn't. Okay, so what makes moral beliefs adaptive? I, I take it there are because they're very widespread, so clearly our moral capacity has helped us survive. Well, why? What, what, what are the adaptive-making properties of, a, of having a moral capacity? Well, they lead to certain behaviors, like keeping your promises. Presumably, if you believe promise-keeping is obligatory, you're more likely, obviously not guaranteed, but more likely to keep your promises. Um, and so there are various ways in which having moral beliefs, because it influences your behavior, it can lead to social cohesion and help the group sort of bond and stick together, which is gonna count uh, on the Sahara when you're just fighting to survive or, or whatever. So, um, okay, so let's say that what makes moral beliefs adaptive is that they encourage social cohesion. Do they need to be true in order to encourage social cohesion? The answer is no. Look, suppose per impossible that um, all of our moral beliefs were false. Suppose you were actually obligated to break your promises for fun. Suppose you were actually obligated to eat sticks and drink pond water. Okay, that wouldn't make the moral beliefs you hold any less adaptive. They would all be false, but, but they wouldn't be any less adaptive. And that's because their truth isn't what makes them adaptive. They're not like perceptual beliefs in this case. They're like religious beliefs. Religious beliefs don't need to be true in order to be adaptive. Even theists should say that because that's just obvious. Um, religious belief is like moral belief. In this sense, even if there was no God, it would be just as adaptive to hold religious beliefs. Um, so I think that an evolutionary account of our moral capacity um, makes it very unlikely that our moral capacity is hitting upon the truth. Sharon Street, a, a, an NYU philosopher whose work I admire, she's not a theist, she's a naturalist, but she rejects moral realism, and she agrees with the kinds of things I'm saying here. She writes in a, a now influential paper uh, of 2006. She says, allowing our evaluative judgments to be shaped by evolutionary influences is analogous to setting out for Bermuda and letting the course of your boat be determined by the wind and tides. Just as the push of the wind and the tides on your boat has nothing to do with where you want to go, so the historical push of natural selection on the content of our evaluative judgments has nothing to do with evaluative truth. Of course, every now and then, the wind and tides might happen to deposit someone's boat on the shores of Bermuda. Similarly, every now and then, Darwinian pressures might have happened to push us toward accepting an evaluative judgment that accords with one of the realist, independent, evaluative truths. But this would be purely a matter of chance. Um, and another philosopher who's worth quoting at, at length is named C.S. Pierce. He's a very famous American philosopher from the early 20th century. And he was one of the first philosophers to really note this, the fact that whether evolution maximizes accuracy depends on whether accuracy is needed for adaptiveness. Peirce says, logicality in regard to practical matters uh, is the most useful quality an animal can possess and might therefore result from the action of natural selection. But outside of these, it is probably of more advantage to the animal to have his mind filled with pleasing and encouraging visions, independently of their truth. And thus, upon unpractical subjects, natural selection might occasion a fallacious tendency of thought. The point that I'm contending is simply that moral thought is just one of these unpractical subjects, a subject where 
truth and adaptiveness are two birds that don't fly together. That concludes my case for step two, which was just the claim that an evolutionary account leads to moral skepticism. Now you might be thinking, um, well, what about the theist? Is he really better off? We better hope, we better hope he is. How am I doing on time, Josh? Great. Okay. Here's why the theist is doing better off. Because he can say that among the influences of our moral beliefs, divine action is, is uh, included. So he can think that God, God wants us to know right from wrong in the whole. So he's given us this moral sense that's at least aimed at tracking the moral truth. Now a theist shouldn't be fully confident in, in the moral sense of human beings, because of course, just look around, people get it wrong all the time, there's all kinds of distorting influences like self-interest, um, all kinds of ways we deceive ourselves. Of course, most theistic views include a, a false story, so we think, I think that one of the ravages of sin is that our moral sense is corrupted to greater or lesser degrees depending on the individual, just as one of the ravages of sin is that the physical eye is sometimes damaged and sometimes blinded even from birth, so it is that the ravages of sin is that um, the spiritual eye and the moral eye can be damaged to greater or lesser degrees, from total blindness to mere myopia or uh, short-sightedness or whatever. Um, so I, that's why I think the theist is better off here. And that concludes my briefcase for step three, which is just that the theist doesn't have this problem. I'm going to end by talking about one important final objection due to Derek Parfit, who's an NYU philosopher. Um, Parfit has written that, why doesn't the naturalist just deny that evolution has influenced our moral beliefs? Why not say that, you know, it's all social training. Put it all into the social category, man. That seems better. Um, now, Here's what I think is the thing to say to this. It's a very serious point because I actually don't think we're in a position scientifically to know that to that or to what extent the content of our moral beliefs um, is influenced by natural selection. But here's what I, I don't think that actually matters. I think for this argument to work, I don't need to say that I know a naturalist needs to, needs to accept an evolutionary account of the moral sense. All I need to say is that on naturalism, it's as likely as not. It's an alternative that can't be ruled out. So um, think of it like this. Let's go back to the compass from Lazy Town. I tell you, not that the compass is from Lazy Town, but I tell you, ooh, I have really good evidence to think there's a 50-50 chance it's from Lazy Town. So I don't know for sure the compass is, is unreliable, but I'm telling you there's a 50-50 chance it's been created in, in an unreliable way. Should you, should you trust in the compass? I say no. I say um, a 50-50 chance of unreliable cancels or negates or downgrades any warrant you have to, to trust in that thing as truth tracking. And in the same way, I think the naturalist needs to say that there's at least something like a 50-50 chance or an inscrutable chance that, that our moral beliefs are saturated with the influence of natural selection. It's not an alternative that we're in a position to assert. I agree. It's not one we're in a position to rule out. Um, but it's a very skeptical scenario, as I've argued. So it's a problem if we can't rule it out. It's a problem if it's just as likely as not that our moral beliefs are totally off track. Um, so that's what I think the thing to say to, to Derek's point is. Um, and 
With that, I'm going to end with a quote from Thomas Nagel, who's a philosopher I like very much, who's just kind of registering a similar kind of hesitation about evolution and whether it, not, it's not a hesitation about evolution, it's a hesitation about whether it maximizes accuracy or reliability. Nagel says, the capacity to form cosmological and subatomic theories takes us so far from the circumstances in which our ability to think would have had to pass its evolutionary tests that there would be no reason whatever, stemming from the theory of evolution, to rely on it in extension to those subjects. In fact, if per impossible, we came to believe that our capacity for objective theory were the product of natural selection, that would warrant serious skepticism about its results beyond a very limited and familiar range. An evolutionary explanation of our theorizing faculty would provide absolutely no confirmation of its capacity to get at the truth. There, Nagel is talking about our capacity to do advanced scientific theorizing and whether evolution would be able to endow us with a capacity um, such as that that's reliable. I'm saying the same thing about our moral sense. So if the naturalist wants to be a realist and thinks there are these mind-independent moral facts, he ought to think that we're hopeless at figuring out what they are. Thanks.